This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Alex Pearson on Point. Today on the podcast, we talk about that tragic funeral in Oshawa, a whole family killed and a young 18-year-old man with his mother trying to deal with the ultimate loss. And we also talked to our friends at BlackRock Reporting, and you can only imagine what they've dug up now, including the Trudeau government's big push for climate action with policies that are going to hit you right in the pocketbook. And we speak to the son of a woman who was brutally murdered in 1988, whose killer has just gotten day parole, even though he's never accepted responsibility. Let's get going. I sit back sometimes and, and wonder, you know, they, they must be a few fries short of a Happy Meal, these people, because I just don't, I don't get it. They, they go out there, they know the rules, and they just blatantly ignore it. And they, they're hurting families. They're, they're hurting seniors. They're hurting everyone when they do it. Yeah, those breaking rules not only don't get a Happy Meal, but you get a whopping fine. The province cracking down on those driving the surge of new COVID cases. It is Alex Pearson with you. On this Thursday, September 17th, I hope you've had a great day, busy day. Um, certainly, uh, look, there's new rules, of course, coming in that we heard about, and that is for those who don't think the rules apply to them. And this is, of course, to try and slow this uh, steady creep of COVID cases, making their way into schools, universities, and, uh, you know, they threaten basically another shutdown if it keeps up, and it's not necessary. But today for me and our home and our family, it was uh, my son's first day back at school and it was a fairly painless process other than the health app crashing. And uh, I got it back up and running tonight. But the uh, the kids were super, super excited. And when my boy came out um, of the door this afternoon, he, he literally declared it was the best day ever. Little mommy, it was the best day ever. I, I was like, you know, it was music to my ears. I mean, it's just such a small thing, but just to see the joy, they were all excited. So that was great. And the uh, teachers very, very organized. It was very, very, uh, I thought they did a great job. I counted 15 little desks. They were all spaced out. And his new teacher, she had put sanitizer on each desk. She supplied pens and pencils. And I had already gone out and bought all this stuff. I'd labeled it so he'd have his own stuff and didn't have to share all this stuff. I had it all packed away. And she said, no. I've already done all that for you. So hats off to her, and I'm going to give her the supplies uh, so that she can use them. But uh, I thought they did a great job. So I felt pretty good. And, uh, yeah, everyone was masked, even the teachers. Why is that? Oh, yes, because they followed the rules. But that is not what happened, as you well know now, at that Pembroke school, now closed down by a COVID outbreak, all because... Some teachers didn't follow the rules. So they are the ones who are a few fries short, they and many others. But if we're cracking down on the rule breakers, then someone, I think, needs to be punished, maybe fired. And the facts are this. 
one teacher wasn't feeling well, but went to work anyway, despite clear rules that explicitly say don't. And this was in the week leading up to school, but the teacher also didn't wear a mask and then came into contact with other staff members, three in particular, who also didn't bother to wear their masks. And then they started feeling crappy, but they stayed at work. A couple of them thought it's just allergies, but they had lunch together. No distancing, no masks. And so now we've got three out of the four who have COVID. Possibly the fourth will have it, but worse, you know, one of those teachers who had symptoms kept teaching and came into contact with kids in three different classes. So now 140 kids have to go get tested for COVID-19 and public health uh, says they expect other staff will likely have the virus. That is the consequence of not following rules. And the rules are clear. Look, you can't show up to work if you don't feel right. Even if you think it's allergies, even if your nose is running, or maybe you just got a headache, you're told don't work. And you have to wear masks. And for teachers, I mean, that is easier for them than anybody else. They get it. How many sick days do they get a year? I mean, they got plenty of them. They will get paid. No problem. So there's simply no excuse. And so I think there should be consequences. But of course, according to the head of the Ontario Secondary Teachers Federation, who joined uh, Kelly Cotrera this morning, it's always someone else's fault. This is a school in a non-designated board, meaning that the classes are full size. There's no reduction. We also have the apparent fact that one of the educators, and it's not clear to me that it was a teacher or some other education worker, worked in multiple classrooms. And we've been saying for weeks it's inappropriate to claim there's a cohort when you have educators piercing those cohorts because their job takes them into multi-classroom work or whatever it is. And, you know, the concerns that my members have about the insufficient risk mitigation in our schools are very real and it doesn't take much of a spark to set this off. Blah, 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 blah. This is what we call spin, folks. Has nothing to do with class sizes. And what Harvey Bischoff will not admit is that the teachers, in this case, in the public system, screwed up and caused this outbreak. They needlessly exposed kids to a virus and it shut down the school because they didn't clearly follow the rules. They've known them for months. And sure, they may not have known, hey, I've got symptoms. They might have thought, like a lot of people at this time of year, it's allergies. They still didn't wear masks, so they broke that simple little rule. It matters. And if the very people who have, by the way, as you know, making the most noise about safety risks, millions of dollars in ads terrifying parents about all the dangers that they and kids face going to school. I mean, if they can't set an example, then they shouldn't be teaching kids. And if we're also increasing fines for rule breakers, as we learned today, then then I think it has to include the very people who've complained for months and the most about their safety and the broke, you know, because they broke the rules. And this is not an indictment on all teachers. Certainly not. I know I saw nothing but a great example at my son's school, and I'm sure that is duplicated right across the province. But the, the, the unions cannot always point the finger of blame at the government and then make excuses when their own screw up, just to, just admit it, make it a learning moment, but just eat it. Got it? Especially when teachers have been supplied with free medical grade PPE. They got lots of masks. There's no excuse. And so, yeah, the province today announced restrictions because the numbers are going up. So you got to have smaller gatherings, 10 inside, 25 outside, and very, very big fines, uh, for those who continue uh, fighting for the right to party. So I think this is good. 
I hope it's enforced. Apparently, police will now go out with bylaw officers who have been too scared to actually do anything, but okay. And I think really it's just going to take a couple of big fines and big examples, and then people may, may start catching on. But as the numbers go up, and as we see them climb, the province has failed to do, I think, something that should have been done weeks ago. And that is, obviously, to expedite wide and rapid testing. I mean, the premier himself boasts, you know, I've got this great relationship with the uh, Trudeau government. And here's the thing, Premier, you need to be calling them. You need to be demanding that rapid testing get improved, approved immediately. The United States has been using two rapid saliva tests for months. And Ford should call Health Minister Patty Hadju, tell her to get off her rear end, get rid of the bureaucracy at, you know, Health Canada and approve it immediately. Because she's now saying, well, Health Canada wants its own data before approving this. Well, I'm sorry. If these tests being used in the U.S. are good enough for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, I mean, surely to God we can get them approved here, right? I mean, right? If we had rapid testing, teachers like the ones that we're talking about could easily test at home as a precaution. We all could. It may not be perfect, but it certainly adds a huge layer of protection. And we're seeing these long lines at testing centers. And they're just getting to get longer. Can you imagine what it's going to be like if you have to wait three or four hours in line in the winter? Are you going to wait outside? No. No one will. So I think all levels of government need to uh, get done what should have been done months ago. Taiwan did this immediately and had success. They had seven people die. They're right beside China, for God's sakes. They shut down the virus in January because... They took drastic steps in shutting down borders and wide testing and masks. It worked. Why aren't we following their lead? I just don't get it. But nonetheless, so today, new rules in hotspots across Ontario and big, big, big fines. And so, of course, this has all prompted the uh, NDP. They've demanded that uh, with what we've been seeing, that classes be capped at 15 kids. But the health experts say... You can't compare apples to oranges. Large gatherings can't be compared to class sizes. I am so proud to be Chris's wife. I love him with everything I have. I am so proud to be Bradley's mom. He was one of the kindest spirits to ever walk the face of this earth. And I am so proud to be Adelaide's mom. Her heart was pure as gold. But I'm so proud to be Joey's mom. He was innocent, happy, and he had the biggest dreams of all of us. And my last words to each of them was that I loved them. My family was amazing. Our chaotic home was always so full of joy and love. My parents gave my siblings a happy life, and they gave me the strength that I'm going to need to get through this. Most of what I have and who I am, I owe to my family. Dad, you always told me I could change the world, and I, I knew it was true because I watched you do it. Bradley, you were my best friend since birth and the person I was closest to in this world. Adelaide, I'll never forget the beautiful smile you would flash me when I would do something goofy. And Joey, 
You were the funniest kid I've ever met. And I wish I could laugh with you one last time. What an unimaginable task that young man had. That is Sam. I mean, I, I don't, I, like, how do you say goodbye to, to your whole family? I, I just don't know. But that, uh, that was Sam saying goodbye to his dad, uh, Chris, and his brother and sister, uh, Bradley, Adelaide, and Joey. They were all uh, killed in that murder-suicide inside their Oshawa home on September 4th. And so there Sam stood by his mother, Loretta, and she was in a wheelchair because she herself is recovering from a gunshot wound delivered by her brother, who's also dead, but drove all the way from Winnipeg to exact some kind of revenge that will absolutely never make sense. But of course, may have been driven over something like a family estate that he'd been cut out of. Catherine uh, McDonald is Global News crime reporter. And Kath, I, I mean, there's countless funerals you've covered throughout your, um, your life. Yeah. This one has to be up there with one of the worst. Oh, it was um, something else, something I, you know, no no family should ever have to bear witness to. And watching Loretta Trainer and Samuel stand by her side and gripping each other, he held his mother's hand. And, you know, really what stri- strikes me here is what's keeping this Loretta Trainer alive, this mother and, and wife alive, is, is this son, Sam, mm-hmm. who... You know, thankfully, he was off at university. He was at Queen's, and um, he was not there the night of the murderous rampage when uh, police say Mitchell Lapa walked through that home and, and shot all these innocent people as they slept. Uh, it, it was so terrible to watch this family today and knowing the pain that they're living. But really, Loretta spoke eloquently mm-hmm. and so courageously about the fact that she's really doing this because... She has Sam there, and Sam, who's, what, I think, 18 years old, is uh, being so brave and courageous for his mother. They have each other, and that's it. Yeah, and she was pretty blunt about saying, you know, nothing good will ever come about this. I mean, it just won't. I mean, and first, as you well know, I mean, in these things, it's the shock of it. But then it's very raw and very real pain. And I refer to one of the stories I remember back in the day of a mother who lost uh, two children and, and another uh, neighbor's child in, in um, when they suffocated inside a tickle trunk. And, and and it was her words about a month later when she said, you know, it wasn't till the media left, till you guys all went away, that the real pain and loneliness set in. I mean, the community has their arms around this family, but just Loretta and Sam have an incredible battle ahead of them. Yeah, they certainly do, and and as you said, what is going to what the what Samuel said is going to help them heal is the community. And because Chris Trainer and Loretta Trainer are both teachers, mm-hmm. and have taught thousands of students over the years, and and they were also you know we heard Chris was a coach, and today across the street were a number of players from the under twelve team that he the Oshawa Legionnaires baseball team that. Chris coached and Joey was a member of the team and and there was a little boy with his mother wearing his uniform. And so, you know, I think Loretta and Sam do have this community um, helping them, thankfully, through this, because, as you know, we we love our teachers. Um, My children just look up to their teachers and think they are the best. And so, uh, so many kids are going to be doing nice things for Loretta and Sam because they loved her and they love her and they loved him. And uh, but it, it was really sad to think that um, this fair, fair, this final farewell, you know, for them uh, every day waking up to knowing that they don't have the rest of their family with them. 
Yeah, there there are a lot of things. I mean, first of all, it's a COVID funeral. Um, so it was very sparse within, um, you know, the service, but of course, everybody watching. And so there had to have been a feeling of loneliness for them, even though um, people have really put their arms around them, uh, you know, on the outside uh, looking in, but they've got to go through a lot of, of, of things now, you know, how do they go back to that house? Do they go back to the house? You know, Loretta would yeah, be starting the school year today, you know, Chris would be going and, and, t- and get meeting his new class. I mean, there's so many new norms that they have to adapt to. And that, um, you know, they've just got a very tough battle uh, ahead. Yeah. And she was wearing a mask that said Stainer Strong on it. A trainer, pardon me, a trainer strong. And and as she was being wheeled down the aisle of the church, as you said, there were only 105 people allowed because of COVID, but she was blowing kisses. Mm-hmm. And she was so obviously, you know, grateful to all those who came out. And of course, if if this had been normal times, there would have been thousands there. But we, we actually uh, did a, a feed uh, for all the media today. So this funeral... Um, was available online, and it was much better than most funerals in that we had two cameras shooting this this video feed, and so there would have been thousands of people watching. And um, wow, just listening to her, I was outside in our in our live truck watching. Uh, I, I chose to stay outside watching this video feed, and what I am just impressed by the strength and the of of her and her son because I don't think most people could could speak about this tragedy. I mean, I was at the Casulo funeral. Sadly, yeah. only at the end of June, and this was a you know another mother and three daughters killed yeah. in an in a crash where someone's now charged a twenty year old with killing this family by dra- driving you know dangerously and without a license, and you know, he should never have been on the road. Say police, and you know I, I saw the father Michael at that funeral, and I saw him at the bail hearing, and he he hasn't been able to talk, and I spoke to him privately, and he 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 may never talk publicly. Uh, you know, it was the sister the uh, sister-in-law who gave the eulogy, the aunt of those little girls. But to, to go through this, to imagine, you know, to go through this kind of thing where, you know, allegedly Mitchell Lapa, the brother who was estranged from his family, who, as, as you said, was cut out of the will, we got a copy of the will. Um, the, the father, uh, Loretta's father, Mitchell's father died. His name was Matthew Lapa. He died in, in January of 2019. And the will that we obtained shows that uh, he had left his cottage and his estate to Loretta and the, the four children, her four children. And the two brothers, um, Chris Lapa and Mitchell Lapa, were left $30,000 each. Mm-hmm. And and in the will, it said that if they were to con- contest the will, they would be cut out altogether. And um, so really, if if this is what this was about, if if it was about, you know, money, yeah. I mean, we always say it's the root of all evil. It really is tragic to think that, this brother would drive from Winnipeg to Oshawa and and do this to his family and then kill himself. And, it is incredible and what happens, though, you know, when it comes to material things, the lengths yeah. some can, can go. But, you know, she suffered herself, uh, you know, injuries. Um, do you know yeah. at this point what, what, what injuries she suffered? Well, she had on her leg. She was in a, in a as you said, a wheelchair and her leg was up. So yeah. I, 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 I assume she was shot in the leg. And I obviously she bore you know she was there she witnessed this so she yeah. likely knows what he was saying as he was uh, shooting up the family that night and she has to live with that pain not just mm-hmm. physical but emotional pain trauma so yeah. I it, she definitely was shot in the leg I can't I, I know I spoke to um, one of the family members that that day who told me that she she's going to make a full recovery certainly physically but I don't know how you recover emotionally from this. 
Well, you don't. I mean, the only salvation, and it's not much, is that Sam wasn't there and he didn't witness um, the carnage. But, um, you know, the headline will fade, as you know, uh, but it'll never settle for this family. And I, I want to make sure we get it in because I do know that there's a, a GoFundMe um, campaign. And I think it's it's still one of those uh, funds that, that is still growing. Is it still open? Yes, it is still open from what I understand. And I mean, the cost of this funeral and now the fact that, you know, she may never be able to go back to work again. I don't know how. I, I hope she can, but she has to, you know, she has months and years of healing ahead and she has to worry about the, about Sam. Yeah, for sure. And I, I can't imagine they're ever going to go back to that house, Alex. I was no, there you... the day it happened, and I I just, it, I know it was a terrible scene. I know all those investigators, all the forensic guys that went in, all the first responders, it was very traumatic. There's no way that she's ever returning to that home. And I, I would think it's going to be bulldozed. I can't imagine, I can't imagine anyone would want to buy that home. Yeah, and certainly, um, you know, it scars the community at large. Uh, so so I'm, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that happened as well. But uh, I appreciate you joining us and giving some insight into something that, you know, because everything's all COVID, I think it's really important that people just share a moment uh, for this uh, this woman and her son. It's just a terrible, uh, terrible tragedy. I appreciate it, Kath. Thanks. Yeah, it was a very difficult day. Thanks for chatting. For sure. Tonight. Catherine McDonald, uh, uh, you know, look, she, she's covered dozens and dozens and dozens of funerals, and that's what you do in your report. I, I've covered my share as well, and they're very difficult to cover, but some stick with you, you know, more than others, and this will be one of them. So, uh, I mean, for Loretta and Sam, our arms go out to you, our hearts go out to you, and um, and I sure hope you get the support you need, because it's just really uh, just a heartbreaking, heartbreaking story. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. All righty, it is uh, time to dig into the headlines where we find some of the really important hidden gems that don't always get most of the attention, but they certainly should because they are important and they matter. No one does it better these days than the folks over at Black's Locks Reporting. And of course, uh, Tom Korski joining us now. He's the managing editor over there. Good to have you, Tom. There's a lot going on these days. Um, I want to talk first a little bit about uh, what you guys are reporting on spending. And, you know, Treasury Board President Jean-Yves Duclos says, you know, they can't cut spending without risking a depression. And we're, I don't even know where the numbers are. There's somewhere around 400 billion, could be higher. But they say that, you know, we need to keep spending if we want to stay out of a, a, a depression. But at some point, there has to be a cap on it, no? Indeed, there is. Uh, it's called the debt ceiling, and uh, they will surpass that this year. They have to amend the Borrowing Authority Act. They've, uh, we, they hit their debt ceiling, and they kept on going. The Budget Office says the federal debt is uh, going to come in at about $1.3 trillion. It was interesting, uh, Alex, you mentioned the president of the Treasury Board saying that uh, we have, if we don't keep spending, we're going to have a depression. Uh, therefore, if we keep spending, we can avoid a depression. You know, I'm not a historian or an economist. I know he's not either. Spending really? did not solve the uh, 
spending didn't cure the depression. World War II did. And interestingly, uh, this is on current dollars. After inflation, this year, the parliament has spent more than it did in World War II. No one believes that statistic. It's true. They have outspent uh, the parliament of 1939 to 1945 in about seven months. That's a fact. Yeah, and the other fact, and it doesn't often uh, really get mentioned, is you know back in the days of World War II, I mean, there was an economy to stimulate. Uh, we do not have an economy to stimulate. And so my concern when I read a headline like this is, we're going to spend, 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 spend to get out of this. But the bottom line is, they don't have a plan to somehow stimulate an unstimulatable economy. And the kids will be left with these 25-year bonds. This will be an issue for the class of 2050, Alex. Like The, yeah. the, the numbers are simply staggering. The interest, uh, uh, the interest peril, as even the Bank of Canada says rates must inevitably rise, no one believes the overnight rate's going to stay at a half a point for the rest of our lives, and the bills are going to be staggering. Yeah. And, and apparently no one cares about deficits anymore. No one cares about spending, but they sure will when that bill comes due. But of course, uh, we'll all be six feet under and um, and not worrying about it. And that's what's unfortunate about it. Then, of course, this is kind of, you know, all encompassing. We get to their green dreams. And, you know, for a bit there, I thought maybe they were backing off of this bold moment of uh, seizing the moment. But Cabinet apparently going to march in lockstep with the uh, European Union on their climate change regulations. And so they are going to try to to mandate, you know, solar wind and other renewable power sources account for a minimum 32 percent of energy consumption in this country in a decade. And I mean, we saw what happened in Ontario. We know how expensive green energy is. That is not just an ambitious plan. It is an impossible plan. It's it's also, you know, it's interesting. You think politicians are interested in, in getting votes? They have just released internal uh, data. So this is polling data. Why is it important? Because it's what they commissioned and it's what they read. And this was prior to the pandemic and the recession. They asked Canadians, what do you think is the number one issue facing the government of Canada today? Fewer than one in five said the environment. Mm -hmm. It was 19% said the environment. This issue politically, I, I, I know this is startling information to my Green Party friends. It's a dog. And that's before we had mammoth unemployment and a pandemic and, and a uh, just catastrophic closures in small business. The number of people who say, I care about the environment, limit their interest to walk in the recycling box to the end of the driveway. When yeah. you ask if it's the number one issue, and there are whole regions of the country, and you, you know where they are, where this goes beyond indifference, there's actually resentment when people say, and as as I mentioned, Alex, this is before recession and pandemic. They said, look, at, just focus on the jobs and start thinking about the middle class because we have troubles. Yeah. And they see climate change, um, you know, as being as big as COVID-19. And that's why we're, we're hearing more and more about it. And, you know, we can't delay. But, you know, they're pushing forward with this clean fuel standard, which is getting very, very little uh, traction. But it should because... It is a huge cost, not just to people with their heating bills and their gasoline, 
on top of the carbon tax, but it is going to be really crushing for business. I mean, imagine what the farmers must be thinking. Uh, even home heating. So uh, the chemical industry, chamber of commerce, other uh, groups have looked at this. They've done an estimate. Clean fuel standard, all it means is you have to increase your uh, element of renewable. That's typically ethanol, could be biodiesel, whatever, in the fuel you burn to get to work and heat your home. Chemical industry and others have looked at this and said, look, at if you think the $50 carbon tax, that's about 12 cents a liter at the pump, if you think that's bad, go plus, 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 because the clean fuel standard will come in at about $200 a ton. So start multiplying by four mm-hmm. and then decide which rooms in your home you don't want to heat anymore. The cost is going to be very high. Yeah, my concern is people are so distracted right now, Tom, that until they actually go and fill up and go, huh, or get the bill, they're going to say, what on earth is this? How did the cost go up? But I think uh, Dan McTagg, um, who we had on the show earlier, I mean, this is going to add about $800 to $1,500 to the average household. And so there is a cost to it. It's just no one is uh, is thinking about it. But, of course, we will continue talking about it. Busy days ahead. Uh, Tom, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Alex. That is Tom Korski. He is the managing editor over at Black Locks Reporting. Of course, a subscription-based uh, mag publication out of uh, Ottawa. And of course, it's worth every cent. They get a lot of really good stuff that uh, drives the conversation. So this next story is uh, outrageous, and it should outrage you. Um, it's about a killer who stalked and raped and then strangled a young widowed mom back in 1988 and has been handed now day parole. And I wish I could say I'm shocked, but by now we all know our justice system is hardly that these days. Her name was Eva Mead. She was 27 when Raymond Babinitsky became obsessed with her, broke into her apartment, and then raped her in front of her seven-year-old son. He would end up getting charged and told stay away, but then broke into her apartment again, threatened to kill her if she didn't drop those charges. And then the next day, after she left her job at the bank, she was to go and pick up her son, who was at his grandmother's, and she never showed up. Her very badly decomposed body would be found seven months later near the killer's work. She'd been strangled and left hogtied. And eventually, this guy was convicted of second-degree murder with a parole eligibility in 20 years. But of course, because he's Indigenous, got to do his time at a minimum security healing lodge in Quebec, where he also got to enjoy weekly visits from his girlfriend and countless day passes in the community, despite a life sentence. Now, this guy's never apologized, never shown remorse. He still blames this woman, saying, of course, it was self-defense, yet now he's on parole. Jeremy Mead joins me now. He is the son of Eva and Jeremy, um, I can't imagine, you know, 32 years later that that or any of that is any easier to hear. It, it doesn't go away for you. It doesn't go away. and It doesn't get any easier for me. Uh, um, like I said, I remember this as if it was yesterday. I remember him raping my mom. I remember waiting for my mom at my grandmother's house. I can't believe that we're actually listening to his stories, his excuses, him using his indigenous status years later. He just claimed the status 10 years ago. We all know why, because you'll get easier time. So he goes up to a healing lodge where he's getting easier time. They don't, there's no, this is not governed by the Correctional Service Canada. So they don't have the resources, the funding, but yet 
they're they're able to rehabilitate the most ruthless rapists and killers. I just don't get it. And and eighteen months before your mother was killed, I mean, your father that passed away. So you have lived a, a very very tough life and, and spent much of your life trying to fight to keep this man behind bars and keep him incarcerated. That's something that victims of violent crime have to do time and time again. When you think, uh, you know, after the the guilty verdict is read, you think finally I, I get some freedom and some justice, but it doesn't really ever come to that. It never does. I think when they say life. They mean the victims are getting life. My mom obviously has no, my mom has passed away. Obviously to this man has been brutally killed. And us family members who are living, we're living a life sentence. We're dealing with this every day. This is not getting in here. I, time and time goes on. As I get older, I realize all the Christmases, birthdays, Easter's I miss with my mom. My mom was a young, scared, terrified of this man. He kidnapped her, raped her, killed her. And yet he's, let out and blaming her in self-defense. I mean, it doesn't make sense. I, I, I don't understand. I'm disgusted by her system. His story that she came, he was going to let her go out of the car with a knife and was going to attack him. If my mom was going to attack anybody, if she was in the car, would she have not ran him over? Why would a woman scared of a man harassing her who stopped her, who raped her? Why is she going to get in the car? and try and kill him. She's scared, terrified of him. She's going to obviously drive away, either drive him over, or she's going to take off and go report it to the cops. So it's just time and time again, these different stories, these different excuses. And it's almost like the parole board is encouraging these excuses by, by blaming his oppression. He was raised by a, a, a loving mother, a loving father, brothers and sisters. I mean, and he's crying, poor me, and, and this and that. He's a career criminal. He should have never been out of jail in the first place. He should have been in jail when my mom reported him raping. He should have never been let out and told to stay away from her. He should have been in jail. He raped a woman in front of her son. Is that right. not bad enough to stay in jail? Well, you would think so. But I mean, you know, oftentimes people are, are released because they've accepted responsibility and shown reform or, or growth. Uh, certainly they've shown uh, remorse. But for decades, he has denied it happened. And, you know, he, he blamed drinking that he blacked out. Uh, you know, so it, it took a lot of kicking and screaming to, to have him even take responsibility, even when he said, if it happened. So he blames your mother, who he says threatened him, which is unbelievable. Then there's a 2017 psychological assessment, which found that he's still a moderate risk of violent uh, recidivism, which is uh, what could happen outside of a secure um, setting. But when you have in the past, because you've had to kind of fight, uh, you know, writing letters and fighting to keep him incarcerated, um, has he ever to your mind, shown any remorse to you? No, not at all. And nor if he even apologized would I, would I care, you know? He killed my mom, you know what I mean? He, my, I was, I, you know, my, my uncle Rob and my grandmother took care of me, you know, they had to change their whole lives around as well to help raise me and then the man I am today. Mm-hmm. So regardless on his remorse that he had none of, I wouldn't, it doesn't, you know, he's, He's not a change man. He's it's just he's just blaming his childhood and his indigenous status on why well, he killed my mother. With that has nothing to do with it. He killed my mother because that's what he did. He was a twenty eight year old man when he did it. He knew what he was doing. So any excuse and to put blame back on a woman who's now deceased, who now can't speak for herself 
I mean, is that what our justice system did after 32 years? Really, is that rehabilitation? Is that what our taxpayers dollars are going to to rehabilitate this man? Is a healing lodge working? If that's his mentality, blame it on somebody else. Blame it on your child to minimize your actions. And we're letting him out in this. And moderate, doesn't moderate mean medium? Doesn't it mean that he's able to do this again? So we're letting him out? We walk the streets like this? It's, it's very sad. Do you believe he's a danger to society still? I definitely, I believe he's a danger to society. And we know he's going to do something again. I hope... I hope nothing happens to anybody, but given given where he's at, he's definitely going to happen. And in fact, his girlfriend supposedly passed away, as as he said in the during the spring, and everyone had to take a moment of silence, and we all had to sit there and listen to him while he pouted and cried. What would you say to the parole board? I mean, you know, you can write letters. I mean, people have victim impact statements, but if you could really try to make them understand, what would you tell them? Because I, I hear these stories. I wish I could say that yours is an isolated situation, but it's not. And so often, uh, victims' voices really are, are 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 silenced. We need change. That's what we need. If we're treating everybody like equals in our society, like we're supposed to, and like that's what all this just about, then we should not be having healing lodges for a certain culture, a certain race, or a certain belief. If you're a killer and you're a murderer then you should have to do your time like everybody else. If you're not rehabilitated, it doesn't matter how much time you do. It matters if you're rehabilitated or not. There should not even be second chances for killers. You killed a woman at 28 years old. You took a mother from her son. Mm-hmm. You know, the parole board doesn't see anything. The parole board treats these, treats these killers like they're kids. So any little thing they do right is, is a big deal to these to the parole board. Like, oh, these people have changed. Oh, they're doing this. It's like they treat these people like, I, I, I don't know. These are grown men who have killed and taken people out of this world forever. And yet here we are playing this game and letting them use all these different excuses and all these different stories so it sounds better to them. I, I, I don't understand. How, how is he oppressed? I don't get it. I really, you know, I, I just hope that there's change and that with everything that's going on in our society now, we can have some kind of reform to treat these murderers and killers like, like, they're, like they are. They're not the victims. The victims are the people who are not living anymore. The victims are the families, the families who are putting up with this for life. I'll never, ever, ever let this go. This is my mother. I'm living with this for the rest of my life. I wake up every day thinking about my mom, what he did to my mom. Does he or does he just go about living his life so what would you um what would you say to him Jeremy if you could look at him face to face um i would let my action speak for itself i really would have nothing positive to say to him at all i think it's i think it's an eye for an eye Jeremy, I appreciate you joining me uh, to talk about this. And, um, you know, we'll, uh, I mean, the more voices added to this, obviously, the more people hear this, the more people become, um, you know, angered and outraged. But I do appreciate you joining us because I know how difficult it must be for you to, to continue talking about it, no matter how many decades have passed. I appreciate it. I appreciate you taking it to put us on. And thank you very much. And um, I appreciate it very much. So thank you. Thank you. That is Jeremy Mead joining us. Um, uh, I don't know. What am I, what do you say about it? It, It's just going to continue this way. We have completely changed the system. 
It's all about reform. It's all about getting people out. It's no longer about a justice system. Sure, the high-profile guys like Paul Bernardo, they stay put. But there are a lot of really bad, violent criminals who keep getting out. They don't deserve to be out. They manipulate the system. And then we talk to a Jeremy Mead or a, a, a Rodney Stafford or these people whose lives are shattered. Sure, Jeremy managed to rebuild his life, but clearly he's a very scarred person. And, uh, and again, there's no justice. That is your podcast for today. You can hear us on Point Live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson.